0: Hello and welcome to the I Fell Overcast. I'm your host, Oliver Broadbent, and this is an episode of I Fell Over on Tour, coming to you from San Francisco. I'm in the city to run a series of workshops for a company out here, so I thought I'd take the chance to capture some sound bites, thoughts and interviews related to the broad themes of this podcast, which are engineering, creativity and practical philosophy, all of which I expect to find plenty of here in San Francisco. The first thing I want to mention is the flight. I rarely fly, and that's for environmental reasons. In fact, I think this flight was only the 7th or so I've taken in about 10 or so years. So when I do fly, there is a kid-like wonder that comes over me. I booked a window seat and spent hours just staring out of it at the ground below. From up there, I saw the mountain ranges on both coasts of Greenland, I saw glaciers in between, I saw the shores of Hudson's Bay, and then nothing but emptiness for what seemed like hours until we saw the next settlement, which was Edmonton, and then then lakes and hills and the Rockies and then Northern California. It was a fantastic reminder of how beautiful the world is and how empty it is and for an extra treat the the pilot took us on a flyby of the Golden Gate Bridge and the Northern Bay Area giving me a taster of the things that I'll get to see. I'd like to talk now a bit about city maps. readers of my blog may have seen a new theme that I've been writing about called analog skills, which aims to explore uh, the skills that we might have had before the advent of the smartphone. I want to check if there was anything back then which we used to be able to do which we can't do now, but it actually would be helpful for us still to be able to do. One of those analog skills I've been thinking about is map reading, and just generally having a good sense of direction when you're in a city. I've always been fascinated by maps, and so I often look at a map of a place before I go. I just want to know how the place fits together. And usually when I'm in a city, I have a pretty good sense of direction. But recently, I found myself much more reliant on Google Maps to find my way around, even in cities that I know. And it doesn't make me feel good, and it's hard to describe why. So I thought I'd experiment with ditching Google Maps when I get to a new city, and relying instead on paper maps, public maps, landmarks, and just asking people. So how's it going? Well, one and a half days into my trip, when I got to the airport my host took me to his apartment in a taxi. The next day we walked around downtown and took a bus to meet friends in the evening and then took a rideshare home. One and a half days in and I hadn't looked at a map at all and I have to say, I felt pretty lost. And for someone who prides themselves on having a good sense of direction this made me feel quite unsettled. I had been taken around the city on foot and in a car but I hadn't made any of the decisions myself. Recently I've read about some really interesting research into how we perceive of and make sense of the world through our senses. The research shows that it is not just our senses alone that help us understand the world, in fact it is our senses coupled to the way we move and how we decide to move. Let's say I look at a 3D object on a pedestal, my understanding of it builds as I decide to move around it and see it from different perspectives. Critically, the evidence suggests that we have to move ourselves. If someone else moves us, our perception of that object seems to be impaired. And I think this is evidence um, that has great significance for the way we experience cities. When we follow the dotted line on our smartphone, uh, on say a map app, we don't have to engage with our surroundings at all to decide where we are and where we're going. There's no feedback loop between the decisions we make at a junction and how the city reveals itself to us. If, on the other hand, we decide to plan a route in advance, we have to decide on landmarks to help us keep our sense of direction, and we have to be on the lookout for those as we move along. Or, even more dauntingly, we have to decide to get, say, halfway and then ask for directions when we get closer. Back here in San Francisco, when I next had a few minutes to spare in the apartment, I looked up a map of the city and tried to get my bearings and tried to retrace the journeys I'd been on earlier on in the week. Since then I've been travelling around my own and I've actually been able to fill in the gaps in my mental map. Earlier today I got a bit lost in the Mission District but was able to navigate my way back based on the position of a few distant elevated freeways and the street that I was on and critically how these two objects moved in relation to one another as I walked down the street. Following the blue dot on a digital map feels much less empowering than figuring it out for myself, which feels great. Right, to help me get a better sense of how the city of San Francisco fits into the Bay Area, I'm going to travel to the other side of the bay and try and find a hill to climb. To get over there I'm going to take the BART, which is short for Bay Area Rapid Transport. The train has a faded space-age feel to it. It's like a vision of the future from the past. Like it might be, say, a transit system for conveying people from a city on the moon to a remote mining station. It even has a retro digital voice. Listen to this. Ten-car train for Pittsburgh, Bay Point in two minutes. Four-car train for Dublin, Pleasanton in six minutes. So I've just been led up a very steep hill behind uh, the campus here at Berkeley by two very friendly students who wanted to help me out. I was trying to get to the top of the hill to get a view, and it was worth the climb the view is stunning. In front of me there's the campus of Berkeley, around to the left you can see Oakland with its docks and cranes reaching out into the Bay Area. You've got the Bay Bridge reaching out towards San Francisco. San Francisco at left, 11 o'clock say, in front of me with its towers, and you can see the telecommunication tower on the top of the hill. And then right in front of me, elegantly leaping between the two land masses, is golden gate bridge it is just stunningly beautiful with the pacific ocean in the background and a wall of fog just creating like a border across the horizon okay google how long is the golden gate bridge in meters two thousand seven
1: hundred thirty seven meters
0: okay google is the golden gate bridge Longer than the fourth Golden Gate rail bridge.
2: bridge crosses the Golden Gate
0: No, no, that's not what I was asking. Okay Google, is the Golden Gate Bridge longer than the fourth rail bridge?
1: Sorry, I'm not sure how to help
0: Well, what you do is you take the length of the Golden Gate Bridge and the length of the fourth rail bridge and compare them with each other Big Google. Hang on, Hang on. Okay Google Which has the highest population? the US or China.
1: According to Pew Research Center, China has the world's largest population, followed by India. The next most populous nations, the United States, Indonesia, Brazil, and Pakistan combined have less than 1 billion people. My name is Daniel Watson-Weller, and we are at City Ride Bike Rentals and Streets of San Francisco Bike Tours. So we're in a neighborhood called Hayes Valley, which is a boutique trendy little neighborhood in the center of San Francisco. What's really unique about this neighborhood is that you cannot have a business in this neighborhood with more than 11 retail locations worldwide. So it's all small local business. Awesome. And um, now we, have, we discovered something quite funny in common about uh, two minutes ago. Will you tell the listeners what that was? Uh, my family um, lives in North London. I've got a cousin who I'm quite close with and I was just visiting him and his new baby and my other relatives and went to the Arsenal Manchester City match at the Emirates two weeks ago, which is right next to where I live. And you walked along We walked to get there. along this reclaimed path that used to be an old railway track and is now being used as a walk path and cycling path. Which
0: listeners to this podcast will know instantly that that was what we talked about in episode six. So I'm here at the bike store. I've I've hired a beautiful uh, road bike, and I'm going to go up to uh, Golden Gate Bridge. And have you got? Can you tell me anything about the ride?
1: So you're going to go through some neighborhoods to get to the Golden Gate Bridge. You're actually going on a route that's quite historic for San Francisco. It's a route that the original missionaries. Used to go from their mission in San Francisco to their fort, where they would defend the land. Right. okay. And they wanted to take their horses on the path that was the least hilly. Right. You are going to do the same thing, um, except for on your bike. And, and, that, so, and, and so that's so called the route was called the Wiggle because <laughs> it literally wiggles between the hills.
0: Which is a little bit what the Parkland Walk does in North London, actually, because uh, your Highgate is very high up, and somehow the, the train doesn't go very steeply. And anything I should look out for on the bridge? Uh, people taking selfies. <laughs> Great, thank you so much, I look forward to the ride. Have a great day. So here I am standing right in the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge. That roar you can hear in the background is the traffic on Route 1, Highway 1 I should say, crossing the Golden Gate. If I look one way I can see San Francisco and, and in the distance Berkeley. And looking the other way, the sun is just about to start setting out over the Pacific and there are huge container ships setting sail for Asia. One of the most stunning bits of the bridge actually are the towers, when you get up close to them you can see how they're built up of big plates of steel um, riveted together. They're really, really elegantly styled. And the color is just phenomenal. The sun catches them as it's going down over the horizon and just lits them up in this most beautiful burnt red colour. This is just such an incredible feeling, a feeling of wonder and terror. Wonder because this is an astonishing engineering achievement given when it was done and terror because I realise I'm absolutely terrified of being high up above water, which I am right now. In fact I'm not going to look anymore. Today I'm heading out to Stanford to meet a researcher from the project-based learning lab in the engineering department out there. I'm taking the Caltrain, a line that runs south from San Francisco, past the campuses of the mega tech companies, Google, Facebook, Apple. This kind of train you only seem to get in the US. It's as if the drawings were sent over, but without any scales. They just built what they had room for. They've got lots of room, so they built big. To make things even bigger, the Caltrain is a double-decker, but not like one you've seen before. The upper deck is really a pair of mezzanines that run down both sides of the carriage with a whole bunch of seats perched up high. So when I'm sitting up here on my little seat, I can see down to all the people sitting below me. It's quite unlike any other double-decker train I've been on. But it's not just the size of this train that is so curious. They seem totally overstaffed. They make a big deal about the train departing from the station as if a train has never left from the station before. Uh, It's a bit like the uh, community rail out in Boston, which I quite enjoyed riding, or the New Jersey Transit near where I used to teach in New Jersey. They're lumbering trains, but I always seek one out for a ride because actually it's quite an experience.
2: and I'm a PhD candidate in civil and environmental engineering. Um, I originally came to Stanford four years ago to do my master's, and so I did my master's in sustainable design and construction, and then I stayed to do my PhD. And my research revolves around how people interact with buildings and how can we get more data from people and how can we use that to help us interact with the buildings in a way that can help us be healthier, more creative, more productive. Um, yeah, get interesting insights from our behaviour.
0: So that's so um, what what you're talking about is absolutely fascinating, and I want I, I want to come back to that in just a moment. But I just want to say that we are here in the campus of Stanford University, and Flavia has very kindly just given me a really great guided tour. And usually, you know, it's not great to record outside because of the wind and that kind of thing. But it, it, we're just sitting in these cloisters. Uh, there's people playing in the fountains. What do you call that, have you got a word for it?
2: Fountain hopping. So that's one of the classic Stanford traditions. And so, you know, especially in this time of the year, we were talking about how in the spring quarter we call it Camp Stanford, because it's nice, it's sunny, and you just want to jump into the water.
0: (laughs) I'm actually going to take a snap of my iced coffee here. (laughs) So the tour began with a, a trip up the Hoover Tower.
2: Exactly, and so we went to the Herbert Hoover Tower Um, and we got an amazing view basically we get to see all of the campus we were talking about how the campus was designed by frederick olmsted and he had this great idea of the different quads and so the hoover tower is the best way to see the entire design of the campus
0: and so uh, uh, um, this is really fascinating for me because uh, frederick olmsted also designed the campus of the school where i worked as a high school teacher in um (laughs) you know 10 years ago longer uh 14 years ago uh back in new jersey so i've seen his work on the east coast and the west coast and it is i have to say there are more palm trees here than there were (laughs) on on the atlantic coast
2: (laughs) well california in the end our weather helps and so here we have palm trees all over campus it's one of the distinctive stanford you know
0: symbols and pine trees as well these pine trees have such a fantastic smell Um, well, one of the things that brought me to campus was because I heard that you guys here run something called the Project-Based Learning Lab, and I'm, I'm project-based learning is something that I'm trying to uh, do more of in universities in in the UK. And so I just wanted to find out more about the approach that you're taking here. Do you think you could give me a quick summary of how the how the the, the course that you run here works?
2: Sure, of course. Um, So the Project-Based Learning Lab is part of the civil and Environmental Department in the School of Engineering here at Stanford. And basically we collaborate with a lot of universities. We have several in Europe, we were talking about, you know, in the UK, we have Loughborough University, we have universities in Finland, in Denmark, in Germany, Um, Slovenia is one of our partners. We have students from the University of Puerto Rico, we have students from Wisconsin, and the idea is that we have multidisciplinary teams mm-hmm. and so from all of these universities we get architects we get structural engineers we get construction managers we get MEP engineers which are the mechanical electrical plumbing yep. they're the ones who do all the HVAC systems basically um, and we get lifecycle financial managers okay. and so the idea is that you get a team together and so each team will have one or two architects one or two are structural engineers the construction manager so one of each basically Um, and they're all globally distributed so all of these students are in their universities and so they come in January and that's where we start the class and so when everybody comes to Stanford in January we give them the project and so what they do is they're going to design a university building Right. and so they have two quarters to design this university building Um, and it's the first time that for a lot of them they've even thought about designing from scratch you know their own building.
0: So what would you say characterized project-based learning as opposed to uh, more traditional forms of learning for engineers?
2: So in this case a great advantage we're talking is like they're learning two things there's one the technical part of their discipline and so it's very different to just learn the theory and you know be able to do the calculations for the structural engineers versus actually get to design a complete structural infrastructure for the building so a lot of them they have never designed their own structure and so for them it's a great experience to put all of those calculations all that theory from class into practice and it really helps sink that knowledge because it's you know once you're practicing and you're understanding why they're important Mm -hmm. you know it's a very different experience and so it's something that they always remember But the most important part about the stats is the collaboration. Because a lot of them have never talked to people from other disciplines. You know, all of these schools are silos. And so the architects only talk to other architects. And they have never talked and understood the needs from structural engineering, from the construction managers. You know, constructability? What do you mean? Why can't I make crazy curves and have my building floating here? You know, it's like, well, you know, how are we going to build it? Or they never get to think about the money system. And so also for them to understand how everything comes together and yep. what their role is in between the whole perspective of the building construction industry it's also a big learning experience for them and it's something that usually you don't get in university and you don't get in school you only get it once you get into the work system but maybe that's too late
0: So is there an extent to which they actually have to define their own brief?
2: Um, so we give them the brief so they have, each team has a university location and so there's different around the world, there, it can be in Germany it can be um, in Wisconsin, it can be in Nevada, for example. And so each one has a very different weather. Each one has its mm-hmm. own restrictions. So there's one in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So if you're in San Francisco, you have to worry about earthquakes versus if you're in Puerto Rico, then you're thinking about, you know, there's going to be hurricanes. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do for the hurricanes? And so each one has a very particular challenge. And so they all have limitations on the height of the building, the size of the building, and they have like basic footprints. Mm-hmm. But other than that, they're free to do whatever they want. So there is, they also have an owner team and so we have representative owners from each discipline who represent the universities and so they get to negotiate and get this experience as well of like how do you deal with a client and so how do you come up with a creative idea that you know pushes the envelope but at the same time that it's you know going to be delivered on time on budget and with the satisfying you know everything that the client needs.
0: So one of the things I heard about your course was that you wire people up, you cover them in sensors <laughs> whilst they're studying. What's what's going on with that?
2: And so that is behind the scenes, sort yeah. of the um, We're doing some research. And so it all began with an NSF-sponsored project that my advisor was working on that was looking at the hidden cognitive demands of knowledge workers. Right. And so they were trying to understand, you know, what happens with all of these people. I was saying, you know, the students are distributed all over the world. Yeah. And so it's not the same, you know, I'm looking at you and yeah. so you can tell if I have a a headache or if I'm tired or if I don't feel too good and so you're gonna adapt your behavior to that. But once we have a computer in between us mm-hmm. and you're back in London and I'm here, you know there's so much information that gets lost. Yeah. And so we lose a lot of that, you know, non-verbal information that helps you create a relationship, develop trust. And so they were trying to understand, you know, what is going on with you? What can we measure of those signals that are lost and so mm-hmm. how can we use that to improve the way that we collaborate in the distance. And so we started putting sensors on the students and so we're using, we have this great testbed, but we're basically having brain waves, we have the heart rate, we have movement. Um, and so we're trying to relate all these things. How much time each people talks um, and just getting insights from that. And so they've been starting a lot of the collaboration. And so in my case, I am using that information as well and we're starting to look as well as the building. And so I'm also starting to understand how does the building affect you and your productivity and the way that you act.
0: So uh, we can come back to that in just a second. I just wanted to ask you, I mean, it feels like this could be a, a, a whole topic for another podcast another time. <laughs> I hope it is. But uh, just just briefly, have out of that research and wiring up the students and looking at the data with them working from different sites, has there been any sort of initial findings? or What, what sort of things are you finding out or what can we learn from it?
2: Yeah, definitely. So a lot of the findings... Um, Maria Frank, who's a PhD student, who just graduated, um, she did her entire thesis looking at this uh, hidden cognitive demands. And what she was looking at was teamwork and collaboration. Mm -hmm. And so some of the the findings that she had was looking at the meetings. And usually there is, you know, after the meeting, you're fatigued mentally. And so there's cognitive flexibility, what they were measuring. And so one of the, the findings that they published a paper on is looking at that... In spite of what we expect is that after a two hour meeting, you're always going to be fatigued. Mm -hmm. They found that in special circumstances, instead of fatigue, there were students who were doing much better after the meeting than before the meeting. And so the meeting itself energized them and it gave them, you know, it was so exciting and they were so engaged that it sort of like flowed after the meeting. And so that means that the meeting itself, you know, the way that we conduct the meeting, is going to be very impactful on the quality. And so now that all the companies have meetings, you know, for everything, a lot of people complain like too many meetings, are we wasting our time? There's like, you can actually, there's measurable things that can help you improve meetings and make sure that you are taking advantage of people's time. And so, for example, just having everybody participate and talk about the same amount of time and the way that you phrase things and so positive language makes a big difference in the way that you relate having artifacts and so having sketches versus just discussion and so if you're sketching together or you're showing plans you're showing images you have you know more artifacts during the meeting that is also going to be much more engaging than just listening to someone talk and so there's you know all of this different tools. And so there are some papers as well and we can probably share some with you well actually if there, um,
0: and if there are any i can put some in the show notes for the podcast for so sure. i stopped you in your tracks earlier on uh, and i didn't but I, um, when you were talking about uh, actually human uh, engagement with buildings so so now please just finally tell me <laughs> uh, about this main thing which is what you're working on
2: Exactly. And so basically what I'm working on is how to develop a framework where we can learn, you know, try to harmonize occupant well-being and building sustainability. Yep. And so the idea is now that we're collecting so much more data about people and there are so many wearable sensors and, you know, we're starting everybody's carrying around, There's different brands with the Fitbit and, you know, the Apple Watch and all of these things. So it's like, what can we take from that data? And what can we learn about you that we can feed back into the building so that the building can help you do your activities better? And so, you know, you were talking about creativity. What happens if you're going to brainstorm? So, you know, what sort of state do you need to be in to be able to develop more ideas? So so like how how much
0: CO2 do we need in the room? Or like you were saying earlier on.
2: Exactly. And so, you know, the CO2 levels There's some really interesting studies from the Harvard School of Public Health looking at the CO2 levels and that effect on your cognitive functioning. And so basically, you know, the higher the CO2 level, it gets to a point where you can't make decisions, where you can't think properly, you you know. And so nobody knows that because CO2 levels is not something tangible. We can complain about the temperature. We're saying today in the sun, it's so hot, you know, if it's humidity you can feel that but you can't feel the co2 levels and so unless there is some measurement and we're giving you feedback you're not gonna be able to know whether it's the co2 level that's affecting you or you know if you are distracted for some other reason and so if we can get the measurement and we can provide you feedback then you're able to make a conscious decision and you will be able to better do your job you know on the other hand humans have a huge impact on the sustainability of buildings. (laughs) And so, you know, they did a study in Europe that, you know, exactly same buildings, same system, same envelope, everything. And they realized that the consumption of energy was varying up to four times. And it was all due to occupancy and the occupant's behaviors. And so now there are large efforts all over the world in trying to better understand occupant behavior. But they're all looking more, it's like more probabilistic and like, when are you going to open a window? Or when are you going to open a door? Versus why are you doing it? And so if I try to understand what is your current state, that is going to give me a a better understanding of why you would make this sort of decision. And once again, if we make a dialogue between you and the building, then it can be more a conscious, you know, give and take of like, how can you achieve what you need to do your job better, your activity better, without impacting the sustainability of the building? Right. Or, you know, it's a give and take. That's the whole idea.
0: So I I, I really hope that we can pick that up again in future. I've just seen there's a whole bunch of people just gone jogging past. It's some really sort of (laughs) idyllic... uh, <laughs> uh, position we're in here. Uh, last thing I just wanted to talk to you about. We, we we had a bit of a chat earlier on about augmented reality, virtual reality, and well, reality. Yes. And um, do, do you want to just say a little bit about where you think that those technologies are going?
2: It's really interesting. So we're talking about what does reality, you know, and it's a really interesting perspective. So I took two classes. One was virtual reality and one was augmented reality. Yeah. And the first thing that all of the teachers started to talk about is, you know, this continuum between reality and virtuality. Yeah. And so the virtual reality professor, Jeremy Bailenson, who's the director of the virtual are, reality lab are they here re- at Stanford.
0: Is, is he a real person?
2: Yes. Yes, not, uh, a,
0: not a virtual person. No. Yes. The,
2: well, that's where I'm going. So his theory is that everything is virtual. Because we all have different perception and it all depends on your perception. And so if you're short-sighted, you experience the life differently than a person who has like 20-20 sight. Versus, you know, like if you sit in the back, you have different, like wherever you are, you're going to have a different perspective. And so the things that I see yeah. and that I experience are not the same things that you see. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, what is real, you know? Yeah. What is real for each person is just what you perceive. And so for him, everything was virtual.
0: Yep. And then I took this
2: other class about augmented reality and the professor had the complete opposite vision of it. And Mm -hmm. so he was saying everything is real Mm -hmm. because even if you are in this, you know, computer environment, it's still real because you're still perceiving it. You're still, you know, in that world, making decisions, taking actions. It's affecting you. It's affecting your cognition. So it's a real experience for you. And so it's really interesting. What is reality?
0: Well, I... I (laughs) As I've been travelling around San Francisco and talking to people and navigating my way around, I've been thinking about how can I avoid using some sort of virtual tools to help me or, or, or augmented tools, and um, because of I'm concerned about the impact it's happening on my experience. And that talking to you and hearing you say that has made me think of something called impeded reality. That <laughs> actually, when we look at this sort of 2D screen. Maybe actually it's not augmented at all um, because it doesn't—it doesn't change when we move, in, in, in with respect to our our real experience of the world. So, um, yeah, not sure where I'm going with that.
2: But you know what? It reminded me. So I, I really like this it because it's like all of these different versions of just how are we trying to deal with technology and what role will technology have in our lives, um, and so keeping in this theoretical before we go into like actual applications especially like the construction industry and such but in this theoretical realm another interesting discussion is within you know okay so there is the the embodied realities of, like are you in the world versus are you yep. out of the world but also they talk about you know artificial intelligence and where does that play and so there's also this whole line of thought about augmented intelligence Mm -hmm. and so that it's not about creating fake intelligence but it's about augmented our own intelligence and so that our smartphones our computers our ipads all of this technology is not you know substituting our brains but it's augmenting it and so we're talking about like oh it affects your memory and you don't you don't need to memorize a lot of stuff because you know that it's here in your extended memory Mm -hmm. and so it's like it's not the memory of the phone but it's a part of your memory that is not stored in your brain but it's that you have quick access to so if i need a phone number i don't need to memorize it it's here and so it's like augmented memory Mm -hmm. in my phone and so if you look at it like that they're all tools to be able to do what you're going to do anyway but you know taking better you know what do you actually need to have in your brain versus just having the tools available
0: so we're all Part of the cloud.
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) So there you go. That's the news from Stanford University in Palo Alto. We have Facebook, Google, and Apple down the road. We're really on the pulse of what's happening. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really fascinating talking to you and for the and for the guided tour. Uh, You're very welcome. I've I've got to come back here. And so with a final ride on the BART, I've reached the airport. Before my wandering around, crossing bridges and trying out different modes of transport, I feel that San Francisco is a city I now know way better. And as I get more and more interested in this concept of analog skills, I think it's timely to have spent a week in the city where so much of the thinking is being done that is shaping how we live our lives. I definitely have a sense that in the cool streets of the city where the successful employees of the mega tech companies hang out, the latest tech innovations from driverless cars to greater digital integration make complete sense. In fact, in this environment I find it very hard to think critically about the unintended consequences of these technologies when everyone is so bought in perhaps the strongest reminder, however, that all is not well is the huge population of homeless and destitute that share the same streets. Arguably the success of the digital haves and their wealth is making life harder for the digital have-nots who can no longer afford to live in the city. But I say all of this not to finish on a downer, but rather to emphasise the importance of conscious engagement with the creative digital output of this city, its impact on people and how we choose to adopt it or choose not to. After a week of unbroken sunshine, Pacific fog is now enveloping the city just as I prepare to board my flight home. I've got a portside window seat book because I've heard that you can see the northern lights on the left-hand side of the plane on this route, so I'm looking forward to that. I've had a fantastic week here in San Francisco, and I hope it's not long before I'm back. if you've enjoyed this episode, then you're going to enjoy the next one, which is an interview with Andy Kaczynski, San Francisco-based transport engineer, who shares with us some fascinating engineering insights from this city. Check it out on the blog, which is ifellover.com, E-I-F-F-E-L-O-V-E-R.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ifellover underscore. Thanks for listening.